0: (coughs) so we've been through the weekend kind of progressing just to recap through these what I call these three progressive layers of inquiry what's happening how am I meeting it and as we go into this afternoon exploring who is it happening to who's the one experiencing this who am I taking myself to be in this experience and We've been linking those questions to these particular qualities of inquiry, what I call the three C's. Right? So that linking of what's happening to contactfulness, so that it's an embodied uh, questioning. Or as we said this morning, so that our <coughs> the embodied presence is itself an expression of that question. If we're sensing what's happening, we could say, rather than asking an intellectual way of what's happening. Or another way we spoke about it this morning is as we're, we're listening to what's happening, not just with our ears, but with our whole cellular and sensory apparatus, we're listening to experience. So that contactfulness as the ground for finding out what's happening. And then that second layer of how am I meeting it? and that link to the second C then of curiosity which we've called uh, body-centered curiosity or kinesthetic curiosity which I also tend to speak of as the willingness and capacity to feel into and find out about experience. We spoke yesterday about that being predicated on the willingness to not know. We find out about by really by starting from the not knowing and then this third layer of inquiry who is experiencing it who do I take myself to be and the linking of that to the third quality of care actually caring for the one who's sitting here caring for the one who's going through this caring for the one who's uh, experiencing It's that sense of (coughs) self-care or self-love. It's kind of a spiritual cliche in a way. Love yourself. You've got to love yourself. But often we mistake loving ourselves for um, indulging ourselves, or pleasing ourselves, or uh, pandering to ourselves, or satisfying ourselves, defending ourselves all of which actually, if we start to look, we might find don't actually, when we get close to them, feel really like a care, a gentle, light holding of what's happening. Sometimes they can actually feel rather injurious to the sense of self, actually like an act of uh, violence or dismissiveness. We can put a lot of fearful or aggressive energy into pleasing ourselves, or defending ourselves, or protecting ourselves, or pleasing ourselves in some way. So if we're really to uh, be interested in who am I taking myself to be right now, and to put aside our accumulated views, and we'll explore some of those views in a minute, we need to hold that process in a gentle way, to make room for whoever it is, for whoever it might be that shows up. Because what we find are there's an extraordinary variety of Martins that can appear here in any minute. Some of you know my shorthand for the various Martins, needy, greedy, lazy, crazy. And actually it's that sense of care, the willingness to, oh, greedy Martin, hello, oh, needy Martin, hello, oh, lazy Martin, hello, oh, crazy Martin, hello. The willingness, in a way, to meet ourselves in, in the various disguises that self wears. Or even worse than those four, spiritual Martin. Oh, dear. <laughs> The willingness to meet that one that shows up, that expects, uh, th- that shows up <laughs> and shows off maybe, <laughs> the, the willingness to meet that one that shows up, with hi, with the, the need for things to look a certain way or for the need for this one to to appear a certain way. I was giving that example the other day of trying to look mindful, on retreat, etc. So, um, I'm I'm saying this in the beginning in a way to set up our exploration, our inquiry together this afternoon in a spirit of great permissiveness for whatever self might show up, or whatever selves might show up. So what other kind of selves are the grandiose one and the deficient one? We tend to defend particularly against the deficient one and yet actually in many moments, maybe most moments maybe all moments, that we feel ourselves to be struggling in some way or in conflict with experience in some way, whether fearful or whether, whether in a fearful withdrawing way or whether in an aggressive pushing way like we just explored this morning, usually the sense of self that's doing that is a deficient feeling sense of self. And we can recognise that deficiency by virtue of that it often feels actually small. We feel ourselves to be small or young or hopeless or helpless in some or other way. There There are certain activities or realms or relationships or areas of life where we might really actually feel adult and actually feel kind of a certain capacity, a certain trust in ourselves, a certain kind of inner confidence, not in a grandiose way, but just in a rather straightforward and honest and trustworthy way. And in contrast to that, we can also notice those moments where we still feel ourselves to be somehow developmentally stunted, right? Where we're meeting this area, or this relationship, or this activity, Where we actually feel like we're six years old, or or whatever it might be. So that's also very helpful, even if it's not very uh, glamorous. To pay attention to to the the ways the deficient sense of self can appear in response to that question: Who am I taking myself to be right now? Who's the one who's experiencing this? We spoke this morning about the three poisons, right? greed, hatred and delusion, and we explored them in a <laughs> little different language, demand, defence, disconnect. And for most of us, one of those directions has a, has a, um, a predominance right? in the way we experience ourselves. So we probably, some of us, experience ourselves in a way that we most identified with or most defined by the sense of grab, demand. What can I get? What do I need? Where am I going? What am I doing? A kind of hunger to get hold of life. And underneath the, each of these movements is the same hope for some kind of, that I can get, in this case. Satisfaction or okayness, actually, that I'll be able to get hold of some okayness. For others, there's more the defensive or aversive relationship, where if I could get rid of something or other, then I could get to okayness. And for others, there's more the kind of the the, the disconnect. Things here seem troubling or confusing or overly complex, and I just, if I could only just like not deal with it, then I could get to okayness. So, it's a, it's a kind of Buddhist typology, right? Are you a greed type, uh, aversive type, or a deluded type? None of them sound particularly glamorous or attractive. <laughs> and, of course, we all know all of them. And yet, it might be that we can find uh, one of them that stands out as a more predominant direction for us. And there are also, there are, I would say, there are extroverted and introverted forms of each of those three. Maybe I'll just give brief examples of those. So the introverted uh, greed orientation is the sense of oh, what I can get for myself, what I can get kind of internally, what do I need to feel okay? Oh, um, I need to have the right kind of, uh, let me get the right kind of food organized and let me make things safe for myself in some way. And it's really about what can I get for me or what can I do for me? and for others there's there's maybe i'll just go through all the introverted versions and then the introverted uh aversive style is more oh what's wrong with me what do i need to change about me to feel okay and then the introverted uh disconnected or deluded style is more just the sense of just getting lost in my own inner world lost in daydream or fantasy or uh whatever And then the extroverted forms, more to do with not so much the inner loop of me managing myself, but more a sense of a relationship with the world, what can that? what or who can I get that will do it for me? And then the more extroverted, aversive style, what's wrong with the world here, what's wrong with the situation? And if only that wasn't wrong, if only the world, in whatever form it might be, wasn't like this, then I would be okay. Or the more extroverted, deluded style, just the the tendency to get really pulled and pushed around by the choices and uh, stuff to do. And to get kind of overwhelmed by all that's around us. So, I'm just kind of sensing the feel of the room as we go through these typologies. It seems to me there's a certain kind of somberness, Mm -hmm. understandably, understandably. There's various views, mm, unconscious or conscious that we tend <coughs> to have about the self in general, which, but of course, means my self because that's the one I'm actually concerned with. Right? And when I was reflecting on this, I sort I divided them into worldly views and unworldly, or sp- spiritual, or you might actually call pseudo spiritual views. The worldly views of the self, firstly, first one, that it's real, that Martin is real in some way. And even though that might not stand up philosophically, and we could argue in various ways about it, the sense, the core sense that I'm real. So that's one of the worldly beliefs about who this is, right? So who's who's the one that's experiencing this? It's me! It just seems so self-evident. Why on earth would you even ask the question? And then another worldly view about the self is that it could be perfected. That if I get things right, if I get what I need, right, to the greed or demanding orientation, or if I get rid of what's wrong, the aversive orientation, for example, then I could get to some state where I'll be okay where the self will be self-satisfied and again even though that might not stand up philosophically even though we can't find many or any examples in the whole of human history of somebody who's just got to the place where oh I'm okay now and then enlightened retirement Um. nevertheless the sense that and our sense of self-motivation and self-movement as an attempt to somehow perfect the self And that runs through spiritual scenes, also therapeutic scenes, and also the whole so-called self-help movement, which is a funny term, right? In a sense, maybe this technique, maybe this course, maybe uh, a, a workshop on such and such a thing, and investing as if this is the thing that could do it for me, as if the self is perfectible. And then, third, although it's related but a slightly separate view, is the sense that this self is somehow faulty. You know that saying when God was handing out um, something or others. I I can't remember how the saying goes, but there's something like that. And when God was handing out brains, I was at the back of the queue or something like that. That, that saying goes. So the sense that everybody else's self is somehow functions in some more or less uh, normal way (coughs) And, and I've got some kind of weird condition where I function differently and again I realize that doesn't stand up, hopefully we all realize that doesn't stand up philosophically but the sense that I'm somehow different in some kind of problematic way and that this this self is a faulty self or a broken self or, um, or something like that and all of those um, views right, that the self is real, that the self is perfectible or that the self is faulty, they're all views that fundamentally do one thing, they reinforce the, the experience of self they reinforce the, the me M- me as real me as a work in progress or me as a problem <laughs> and then there's what we could call these spiritual views of self or quasi pseudo spiritual views of self so the first one which are more or less opposites to the worldly sense the first, sense, first view is the self is not real and uh, was it this morning or was it yesterday or was it in another lifetime (laughs) we we were speaking about that, the fact that the Buddha refused to answer that question is there a sense or a self or isn't there? So, but because mind isn't very good, at least the untrained mind isn't very good at really dwelling in ambiguity that's one thing that inquiry starts to give us more and more is the capacity to abide in ambiguity to not be dependent on answers, but to allow the questioning, the inquiry, to develop and deepen. But because we're not very good at that, we tend to swing from there is a self to there isn't. And some strange position that that, that, uh, I'm I'm from, yes, I'm real and I'm here, to no, I'm not real and I'm not here. There's, There's no one here. Second view is that the self is somehow um, not so much as in the, the worldly view that I'm faulty or bad, but that the self, itse- the self itself is bad wrong that it's an aberration somehow that it, should be, that it needs to be, in other words, gotten rid of and therefore I've got to, and we sometimes even hear the language of killing the self or the self has to die in order for who knows who to be born. The self has to die. The self is the problem, in other words. That self is the problem. I'm doing these practices because of my self. I've got, everything's, you've got problems because I've got a self and I've got to do away with the self. And of course the problem with that is one's constantly in conflict with one's experience because the experience is identified with. So this is my experience, it's a self that's having the experience and I end up in this kind of uncomfortable battle with myself. And if we come to spiritual practice, like most of us do, right? why do we come to a practice like this? Because we're disaffected in some ways with our lives and with ourselves. And so we easily end up using our practice in, in concert with that disaffectation. Right? I've got, I'm struggling with my sense of self, it's uncomfortable in here, in my life. And then I hear something about that maybe there isn't a self really, and maybe the self isn't real, or that self is, I can get past self, get away from self. And this is what I've called the third view, that self is something that should be, or can be, transcended. But there's no, it's not wrong in itself, but we, I'm going to transcend the self. And then usually what we mean by that is somehow to lift out, lift off, <laughs> lift off out of the murky and complicated realms of human experience and suffering to some transcendent place where none of that dust of the world touches me anymore. And any kind of view whether we have any of these views, a view about self, any positionality in other words, interferes with or compromises our capacity for inquiry. If we want to inquire into who this is, then we could say that actually the the condition for true inquiry is to, to put aside all our views. More realistically, we might say that actually inquiry is that which enables us to see how we are inevitably immeshed or caught in some or other view. Views that might even contradict each other. Views that very probably do contradict each other. So who is the one? Who experiences this? Who is the one I take myself to be? Or maybe more accurately who are the ones I take myself to be? This multitude of Martins. And to explore then that tendency not only who I take myself to be but the way in which I imagine that I could or should be the self ideal built into how I view myself as being is some self ideal there's a lovely line by Suzuki Roshi he says liberation is the absence of anxiety about imperfection Mm -hmm. Liberation is the ang- absence of anxiety about imperfection. And the capacity to tolerate oneself, we could say. Initially, at least, or sometimes at least, to tolerate that one which is showing up here. To care for, like we've been saying, that one who shows up here. You might find it increasingly, actually, to enjoy the one or the ones who show up here. The unique configuration of experience and uh, personalness that comes forth as this <coughs> Martin or as these Martins. I think one of the challenges of really inquiring into our sense of ourselves is to explore these kind of elemental or impersonal forces that are shaping us. Right? These three movements that are so just part of biological and physiological and psychological and emotional life that the Buddha pointed to them two and a half thousand years ago, called them greed, hatred, and delusion. And we can still see exactly the same movements and directions going on here. The willingness to kind of explore these forces that are just going on by nature showing up as a sense of self and at the same time actually really honor and retain and express our personalness. We have a personal expression, a personal uniqueness, a personal aliveness, personal capacities, personal brilliance, personal skills, personal appearance. And rather strangely, given this, some, this kind of Buddhist ideas of not-self or of trying to transcend the self or the wish to get away from the self, and often a, confuse, a confusion between self and personality, it's often rather interesting that if you think of those people who one might really admire, who seem to be rather free of self-contraction and self-concern and self-involvement, Dalai Lama is a good, always the good Buddhist chestnut to wheel out as a great example. Right? They seem to have quite a big personality. Dalai Lama, is big personality, big ego, we might say. is a kind of a <laughs> wrong thing to say in a Buddhist circle, but lot, lot, very like big personality, laughing, joking, expressing, smiling, radiant. So interesting for us to reflect on our view of self or our relationship with self or our idea of where self is headed or where self should be headed in, in, uh, in link with or in contrast to this sense of the personalness that is really an, an intrinsic and an important part of who we are. Our life and our practice are inviting us to show up in this unique configuration that we find ourselves in. One of the ways we can um, view self then is as some kind of um, partial thing. Like We've developed a self, it's, it's partial, but then we're on the way to some th- somewhere else. Or even as some kind of aberration. Sometimes there's that view that we started off perfect when we were a little baby, and then things have gone downhill from then. (laughs) As we've as we've kind of layered on various uh, traumas or wounds or um, difficult experiences, and then layers of learned reactivity, (coughs) etc., etc. Actually. I think it's more helpful and more accurate to see that progression as a progressive capacity to witness, to know experience. Mm-hmm. To w- witness experience. That's a lot of what spiritual practice is about, right, a lot of what meditation practice is about is the witnessing of experience, being able to take um, uh, a perspective on what's happening that's knowing what's happening, that's intimate with what's happening, and yet which is not identified, not self-involved with what's happening. Babies have no capacity for that. Right? Have no capacity to, to witness objects without being completely self-involved with them. They're, they're totally, so that if they're hungry, they, they don't have a perspective around their hunger. They don't have a sense of, oh, I'm hungry, but I'll wait, because mum's probably busy. Right? Hunger, hunger is just is all they are in that moment right? and yet then they get to two, three, they just begin to start to have some sense of other of object, there is no object in, a, in a completely infant consciousness and then there's the, just the beginning of object, mother usually mother and other so there's the capacity to have some beginnings of having some sense of self as distinct from some kind of other. But the capacity to, to actually be independent from others still isn't very direct, uh, very developed. So the object that appears has a huge amount of power over the child. You see, when children's toys are taken away when they're two or three, right? They absolutely freak out. It's mine! Mm-hmm. <laughs> So objects, as soon as they don't correspond with the, as soon as they're not well aligned with the sense of self, they create a lot of distress. And then we get a little bit better at that and we're able to kind of have a bit more perspective and we're able to know objects without them completely knocking us over. And that we could say is the beginning of self-consciousness. Which is a kind of loss of innocence, you know, that's one of the things we might love about watching children play, is that they are unself conscious And then we develop self-consciousness, so it's not just objects that we're able to witness, or to know, we're actually able to directly know a sense of self. Which is actually really important for self-reflection, and for kind of uh, emotional regulation. But it's also uncomfortable, because we start to feel the way this self isn't fully satisfying. We start to develop a sense of the, the um, ambiguity of self, of the discrepancies of self, of the faultiness of self, of the needy, greedy, lazy, crazy nature of self, etc. And so then when we engage in spiritual practice, we're starting to uh, have the capacity not just to know the sense of Martin, but actually to really, to, ge- to consciously pay attention. To witness the arisings and passings of that sense of self. For For the sense of self itself, having first been the subject, I am having an experience, the sense of self begins to be able to be an object. Oh, the sense of self is arising and taking ownership of experience. And so there's a kind of continual trajectory towards more capacity to witness and acknowledge and know experience without being uh, pushed and pulled by it. In that way, like I was saying just now, to notice oh, the, the arising of the myriad Martins without taking them so personally, without taking myself, what I call myself so seriously. Room for a more playful more creative, more responsive relationship. <laughs> so, this is the territory of our inquiry. And before we do actually two little exercises together, I just want to also refer to that most common, most ordinary most taken for granted signifier of ourselves which I've already been using many times this afternoon this one is called Martin just to pay attention to your name and you know we we uh, we've just been ascribed our name and we've got we've had a few decades to get used to it and yet I think there's lots we might find out some people like their name some people actively don't like their name and some people just don't give any thought to their name either position is interesting I would say for some the name stands out as in in what it signifies so name can signify certain things right it might signify our religion, for example, in a way that we might feel proud of, or that we might feel ashamed of, or that we might feel uncomfortable of, or in a way that we just haven't noticed. Name might signify uh, gender, in clearly ascribing us a particular gender through our name, or actually in being ambiguous, or, um, uh, what's the word? and ambiguous will do, right? a name that, that can be used uh, in... in androgynous. B- yes, both of those things, androgynous, maybe, in, in its name. And, mm. and whether it signifies one or other or uh, somewhere in between, the kind of binary gender, that also m- could be a source of uh, gladness or discomfort or it not having given consideration to what else? If we've grown up in um, in a cul- in a in a culture or in a place or around a language where our name is a kind of is a, a foreign-sounding name or a, na- a name that's difficult to pronounce, etc., that may have contributed significantly to ha- to a sense of ease or comfort or dis ease with our name. And of course, the more um, ordinary, our name is. Either, in other words, the more it describes the gender that I identify with, and has its place in the culture, in a kind of majority sense that I've grown up in, the more ordinary or invisible our name might be to us. But if one has grown up with uh, um, some sense of minority or diff- or sense of difference around the designation of, of, of one's name to do with gender or religion or culture or language or something, then it's likely to have a bigger impact. And even if those categories don't seem particularly to apply to you, the exercise might uh, show you that your relationship to your name that you may not have noticed. So, the first exercise we'll do has two parts, or family is the other, family signifiers of one's name. Some of us are given uh, the same name as a parent or as a grandparent and might have a relationship of pride or of disdain or of discomfort or all kinds of things to do with that. And there are, you know, there, those are the ones that just came to my mind. There may be others as well. About nicknames. Yeah, yeah, nicknames. But the, the exercise we're going to do is particularly to do with ones of first name or the name that you use as a first name. You know, even if it may not be your actual first name. And if you use a name that isn't your actual first name, how interesting! There may be a reason for that. What if you if use you've first name, to yeah. different well, how interesting, right? There might be a reason for that. Or also, if you've checked, or you've changed your name, yeah. How interesting. There might be a reason for that. <laughs> so, the first exercise has two parts. The first part, for five minutes, you just repeat your first name. Oh
1: Martin, what? <laughs>
0: Martin, Martin, Martin. Martin. <laughs> for 5 minutes. Uh-uh. <coughs> There's no guidelines other than that. But that's all you do is repeat your name. You might find you listen to the process, you know, it's an inquiry, right? So listen to what ha- listen inwardly to what happens as you repeat your name. Listen to the emotional response you have, listen to the associations you have. I'll actually I'm gonna describe the exercise and then I'm gonna give a little more instruction for the for the form. So the first five minutes you just repeat your, your first name. And then the second five minutes you you say a Martin is someone who dot <laughs> dot. So Martin 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 for five minutes and then a Martin is someone who So um, are you saying A Martin A Martin is someone who A Martin a Martin is someone who... Nah. Okay. So it's not this Martin? Well, y- w- yes, it clearly is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if we need the word A in there. Just, Martin is someone who... So let's scratch the A and just start with the, the proper noun. So, yes... M- so, yes. Yes, you don't use Martin. (laughs) 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 Martin is someone who... I hate to think what the responses might be. (laughs) So, five minutes of repeating your first name, and then five minutes of Martin is someone who... Um. And then uh, the second part of the exercise is... (coughs) As a repeating question. So we'll just. um, Okay, we'll figure that bit out in a minute. The second part is a repeating question and it's just, who is experiencing this? So, repeating question just in the form like we did it yesterday, right? Just for the period of time, you're just offering the person the, the question again and again. Who is experiencing this? And Having done the first exercise, name, and then uh, Martin is someone who, etc. Really let yourself put all of that aside in the second question. And see if you can do that second exercise starting from the basis that you, you don't know and you're going to find out as you hear the question. Who's experiencing this? And see if you can find out. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. Who or what does it seem to be in that moment that hears, that receives the question, and that therefore, and that then processes and responds to the question? And let your inquiry go wherever it will, however banal and ordinary that might be, or however wide and expansive and far out that might be. when you just repeat your name minutes. Yeah. You'll it is what happens inside. You don't share. You no, you just, you just repeat your... Name. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, for the second bit, um, Catherine is someone who... Do you just say whatever word comes to mind and you reflect on it deeply? <coughs> I think it's sort of some, let, my, my Let's I see. I a bit silly about it. Yes, well, because you're already trying to rehearse it now. <laughs> yeah, true. Sure. Right? We don't know who Catherine's going to be mm-hmm. then. Do you just say yeah you, you, say, you say your name right that will already start yeah. to influence your sense of things and then you follow up with a Catherine Catherine is someone who and see what comes see I what see you what find come. out about yourself I must be uh 92 15 years ago that I first did this exercise and I found it astonishing to find out all kinds of things Martin was somebody who oh <laughs> all kinds of things you that did I didn't know until then. that moment Testing it. yes yeah. please don't rehearse isn't yeah. there right theres there is no way to rehearse inquiry generally right that's what inquiry means in a way in it, it's an in going to this moment's experience yeah 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 so no need to plan or imagine now what might be your response Excuse me, you so definitely yes yes sure Sure. so you're really it's really uncovering the various associations and identities and views that one has about oneself yeah yeah so, I just want to give a little bit of orientation around inquiry, which we've done it in different ways, right? We've done it in terms of talking about contact, <coughs> curiosity, and care. We've done it in terms of this kind of three layers of what's happening, um, how am I meeting it, who's experiencing it. And I've come up with another little uh, thing. It's called the ABCD of mm-hmm. inquiry. So, A means allowing your experience. And that allowing, particularly, the state rather than the story. you allow whatever's here to be here, as much as possible, without censure, without judgement, without looking for it to be a right or wrong experience. So that's the A, allow your experience. And the B then is body leads. Listen to what's happening physically. It'll give you a, a, a better sense than just listening to the reactions and interpretations. Listen to what's happening physically and let the reflective process then be there following along. Letting it be secondary to... So, body leads and thought follows, you might say. The C, of course, is caring for the experience, caring for the one who's going through it, particularly if you hit a place or hit some material that feels tender or feels overwhelming like we heard this morning (coughs) or just feels uh, difficult or painful in some way, then really important to be respectful to the process by just caring. You might slow down and say, oh, there's something that's difficult here. I want to explore it, but I really need to take my time I need to find out how to. I need to just care for the process. And then the D is developing the inquiry through an openness to memories or images or associations, tension patterns, views, the, or the things that you notice that arise in conjunction with the material particularly the openness to images, memories and associations that you have as you're exploring something. And sometimes in meditation there can be a lot of, uh, in, in terms of establishing samadhi, like we were speaking about <coughs> yesterday, there can be an, uh, an encouragement to, oh, just let go of the story, let go of the story, let go of the story, come back to the breath, let go of the story, come back to the breath and that can be very helpful for establishing Samadhi, but we can end up with some view that there shouldn't be any room for the story, or that there shouldn't be any story. And actually an inquiry, so allowing your experience, body leads, caring for what's happening, but then you develop the inquiry through actually listening to the images that come, or the memories of, oh right, this state that I'm feeling, it's like, I you kind of join up the dots with something that happened when you were six, for example. And so associations, images, memories that fill out your inquiry are often very, very helpful. Can they be symbolic, yeah, they <laughs> might They might be. They might be. <laughs> Emily? So then is it good to... Yeah, then that becomes part of your inquiry, right? <coughs> Not in a way that carries you into telling a lot of the story of oh, what happened. Like, don't tell the story that you already know, right? And certainly don't tell it for the sake of informing your listeners, right? But if something stands out by way of memory, see how it connects and explore the connection. In the next sentence, that begins the same way, maybe in that. Maybe yeah yeah maybe you don't have to what you say in response to the question doesn't have to be an exact answer to the question you say whatever comes right so who's the one experiencing this you say oh, i feel like i'm going mad with this question <laughs> that's okay if that's what's happening right i think there's something quite english about feeling if someone asks us a question we have to answer it <laughs> you know this kind of the english politeness i'm not sure if it's particularly related to englishness but But you're responding to the question rather than answering it, right? The question is just giving you a springboard for your inquiry. Whether what happens in response is an answer or not is of no importance. So please consider yourself liberated from needing to answer the question. Okay, let me just figure out the timing. yeah and that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to figure out because it's quarter to four already so 5 and 10 and 5 and 10 Actually, 20 no, 20 makes 40 yeah so we'll do it in twos then um, I'd like to do it in bigger groups because I want you to have the experience of hearing from more people, particularly in the first exercise, but then it will take longer. Maybe. Uh, we did 10 and 10 and 10, and then we did 10 and 10 and 10. How many? Oh, oh yeah, that's too much. If we did ten and ten and ten and five and five and five. That'd be forty-five. Mm. Okay, so we'll do it like that. So you'll do it in groups of three, right? And um, so you have two witnesses. Wh- while the first person just goes through the five minutes of name, five minutes of responses, and then you take turns doing that, all of you. And then, uh, with the repeating question. So that A asks B, then B asks C, and then C asks A. So you each get an opportunity to ask, an, an opportunity to respond, and an opportunity just to be there as a silent witness. Sorry, can I just... so, sorry, does he, so each person does both of the first bits? <coughs> all together. yeah. yeah. together. The, the first part, and then a Martin, Martin is someone who. That bit all goes together. Altogether. Yeah, the, fir- the last part, the um, who is experiencing this, you're just going to do that for five minutes, for the sake of time, huh? So, the, exactly, so it's five minutes of your name, then five minutes of Martin is someone who, but you all do that bit, right? One does it, then the second one does it, then the third one the does it. The five minutes each? Or the 10 the minutes ten? each, yeah. So, okay, so this is, this is the... This is the <laughs> <laughs> Martin, 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 Martin. Martin is someone who, Martin is someone who. Then we move on to Sue. Sue. Sue, 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 Sue. Sue is someone who, Sue is someone who. Then we move on to somebody else, somebody else, somebody else. Somebody else is someone who. Then we've done that bit. Then we come back to me again, and we do the, the other part. You ask me, who is experiencing this? And I tell you. And then that person somebody else asked you who is experiencing this so and you tell round, them and then they tell no but so you oh do it we start do start it for 10 minutes five minutes, 10 10 10 minutes 10 and then five minutes the and then five minutes no Martin 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 and then a Martin is someone who oh, okay. so we do that part okay. is you yeah. get you get 10 minutes 10 each 10 five minutes. and five yeah. then 10 minutes each five and five and then we go around with a five minute circle of the rest. thank you for clarifying now I'm sure it's abundantly clear Um, Yeah, I did yesterday, so as the ones who are listening, please really be as present as possible, and that means eyes open and contactful and grounded in your body. As the ones speaking, it's up to you whether eyes are open or closed, whatever, or partially open, partially closed, or changing, and see what what, uh, fits for you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you.